Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being Black. Welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black, the podcast where we don't just discuss Black history, we talk about what it means to be Black in America right now, back then, and I guess forever and a day. We will always be joined by thought leaders and academic scholars who have spent their life and their livelihood in learning more about the history and have honest, open conversations about what we're going through now. And we always leave each episode with some action items of what we can do to be the change we'd like to see. Today, I am so excited to be joined by today's guest, Dr. Cassie Turnipseed. She is the Assistant Professor of History at Jackson State University. Dr. Turnipseed, welcome to the History of Being Black. Thank you. I feel welcomed. (laughs) Now, right off the top, I want to say, I always ask our guests, how would they like to be referred to? And uh, generally, people will say, um, oh, well, you can refer to me first go around as Dr. Such and Such, but then just call me, you know, Bob. Geisha, Lance, (laughs) when I asked you, I was so more in love with you already because you said in the current climate, please refer to me as Dr. Turnipseed. I would love for you to speak to that. We're we're talking about, obviously, the Wall Street Journal article questioning why Dr. Jill Biden has doctor on her name when she's not an MD. Just speak to me Mm -hmm. about that being a doctor, being a woman, being a black doctor, what Mm -hmm. that meant and who you are and why (laughs) that was the most ridiculous article written. Yeah, let me first say I am a sister from the hood with a PhD. Thank you. Okay. And okay. I worked hard for it. You know, and you know the rites of passage that you must have jumped over and swam through and just kicked out the way coming through the hood to mm-hmm. get your PhD. And yes, and so my my mentors told me early on as, you know, actually when I successfully defended my dissertation, that I should change my first name for the next five years to doctor and make everybody call you doctor. And so... <laughs> the legal paperwork. <laughs> yes. And so, and so my cousin, who is a um, dentist... He said to me the same thing and then and then basically said, and if they don't like it, then he used an expletive and said, you know. <laughs> and so um, why, so why would someone point, who doesn't have a PhD question why someone who has done the work to get a PhD, why would they use their titles? What yeah, is that? I don't know what that is, but I saw last night um on one of the talk shows, Jill Biden, Dr. Biden was sitting next to her husband, President elect Biden, and she too just went into this very it was almost it was an emotional um response to say, "Hey, I work too hard, you know you have to understand getting a phd that ain't no joke, and then getting it in history it's probably harder than getting a medical degree." is what people want to just to say as a doctor. But no, we are all uh, specialists in our fields, and that's that's the title. It's the doctor. Let me tell you, I have such respect for your PhD and all PhDs. I have a BA, and that's just the beginning of the word barely. I barely got that BA, <laughs> okay? I got out of school one time, and I said, if I don't never have to do that again, I'm going to make this one degree work. 
So I do. I love I do school, appreciate. though. That's that's my passion is education. It is. And so learning. you knew you were always going to go into education. I yeah, because that's basically all I've ever done. And my nieces, I was going to tell you too. My all of my nieces, um, they now call me Doctor Auntie. That's my name instead of. <laughs> And that, that has that always been our thing. You know, our thing has always been that, oh, Auntie Cassie coming, you got to do your homework, you know. But it's just that passion of learning and hoping that I can inspire others to do said same. So, that's, so yeah. now you have some interesting passions, and one of them is going to be the focus of this, this particular episode. I'm curious about how you came into this as being a passion, and you are so well-read and well-written on the topic of cotton. Now, Black folks tend to not want to talk about cotton because it has this connotation to us in the story of what we understand of our history of being black is don't talk to no black person about no cotton. And that is what you have researched. And that is what most of your um, studies and a lot of your writings are about cotton and the economics and how how it affects us in America. I'm so curious how you initially got interested in that being a focus of study. That's such a good question to ask to um, go down this path uh, with me um, because the very first, well, let me just say, I'm from San Francisco, born and raised in San Francisco, California. I don't know a thing about picking cotton. I ain't never heard, except for what you're going to wear, you know, it, it being the fabric of our lives and everything. But I moved to Mississippi, which is where my parents are from, and everyone older than me is from Mississippi. And um, so I I had uh, just recently gotten a divorce. And so I was just wanting to sit down and shut up and just go somewhere where I could just do that. Right. So I came to Mississippi and started working with blues artists and working with the Greenville Delta Heritage and Fest, um, Blues Festival. And so in that process of learning about the culture, about the music and, you know, daddy always played B.B., and, you know, Albert King and all those other blues artists, but I had no understanding of the essence of blues and where it actually came from and, 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 and how it was extracted and even evoked in the cotton fields. So, you know, me and my little happy self, I went back home one year and took my father a bowl of cotton. And by this time he had lost his eyesight, so he didn't see it coming. But my mother was standing on the other side of the room just shaking her head like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and then I, I know she ain't coming over here with no cotton. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And so I put it in his hand. And so he's like, what did you, you give me? I said, Daddy, I brought you a gift from the Delta, from Mississippi. You know, it's, you know. then I was just happy because it was beautiful. It was a beautiful bulb that was well-preserved and just nice and clean and neat. And then so he was trying to feel it and see what it was. And he was all confused. He said, would you give me a sock? I said, no, daddy, you don't know what that is. He said, no. I said, that's cotton. And then as soon as I said the word cotton, he screamed. He threw the cotton up in the ceiling. And then he turned in my direction and he cursed at me. And oh, he wow. said, don't you ever put that in my hands again. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh my God, what happened? And I wow. really was hurt because my father don't curse and he don't talk to me that way. He has never, you know, so it hurt me so deeply. I was like, what's the matter? 
And then my mother was on the other side saying, that child just don't understand. So I wanted to understand. Why is it that you guys never talked about cotton? Why is it that you're so traumatized by this thing? And what is it, you know, that you're so, why are you still so mad at cotton? What did it do to you, you know? And boy, did I discover our truly horrendous past. But at the same time, what I discovered is the precious and the and the real significance of cotton to this country, not only to America, not only to um, um, Africa, because that's really where it began. We came over with the skill, the seeds, the gin, the technology, everything about cotton. We knew everything when we came over here as enslaved Africans. It is how Wall Street, the Wall Street in New York, was formed and developed as around who is going to um, market and exchange and and hire out workers to go to these different regions and pick cotton, basically starting in the Gullah Geechee regions of South Carolina and how it was just transferred and transposed over to Mississippi. And it became the cotton kingdom of the world. And baby, let me tell you something. The story gets really, really deep and very painful. And But at the same time, cotton was the number one commodity and product in the world for nearly 200 years. All industries combined did not equate to the value and the profits that was made in cotton. Cotton is the essence of America's greatness. And it's like, why in the hell are we not learning about this? Why are we not understanding the true contributions that African people have made to this industry that has become the fabric of our lives? And it's like, how dare you not give us that, that, that other side of, of what that really means to this country, to this culture, to this economy, and not only here in America, But when you go to Britain, there is a little town called Manchester that is called also Cottonopolis because it became the first industrial city in the world based on the textiles that were or the raw cotton that was transferred into textiles there in that city and throughout that region. So how did the queen make her money? Cotton. She too once owned all, I mean, the largest plantation here in the Mississippi Delta. I mean, the story goes on and on and on. But to have a city way over in Britain called Cottonopolis, that was in fact the cotton capital. And here in where I now live is the cotton kingdom. And then you got the Gullah Geechee community where in Columbus, that was a once the cotton kingdom. And so I just tried to then study and try to understand what is the connection from New York to Britain to Carolinas to Mississippi. And that is the story that truly, truly needs to be understood and respected and appreciated. So my passion is why don't we develop a historic site, a monument that tells this story? that really tells it in a dignified, respectful way that will bring honor and the kind of respect that our ancestors truly deserve. And for our children to be able to see 
This is how you be respectful. You respect the decisions that your grandmama and them made because this was about survival. They understood the American experiment. They understood that we're building something here. And because of racism and because of all of the hatred and the oppression and all the mean things that white folks was doing to us, you know, they put that in check too and decided to go along and cooperate and then contribute in their own way. So I consider that sweat equity investment. When you talk about yeah. the respect of, of obviously of our ancestors and the buzzword of cotton, not mm -hmm. just for younger generations, as you mentioned, your father, when you, I've told people before that when they took Africans and enslaved them, they got the, the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, the brightest, the most innovative people on the planet. I mm -hmm. never think about cotton in Africa, in my, mm -hmm. in my mind, just when you said that. So talk to me about that major industry that was already there coming with the people they stole. You know, the interesting thing about us as a people is that, you know, we typically are not that capitalistic minded. You know, it's more about exchange, barter, social, you know, kinds of ways. If my brother is good, I'm good. Ubuntu, right? So, you know, how can I be happy and comfortable if my children or my cousin over here is over there starving and are anything equivalent to that? So in Africa, the way it was, cotton was grown as a subsistence plant. So it grew alongside the vegetables and your rose gardens or whatever else you had going on, right? And it was exchanged in that way. So you had onions, I had cotton, you had, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So that whole exchange was really the way it worked. So they had the process of ginning. Um, they knew how to extract the seeds from the cotton and then create thread and then create fabric and that whole way in which you produce clothing. So cotton was what was used and cotton um, was the material of the day. It was primarily cotton. And then in the eastern part of Africa, you had more of the linens and you did have the animal skins more in the southern region as well, but more of that western. And it's really Interesting when you look at Mali and how it is adjacent to the Niger River and how that's that was the, their cotton kingdom. And what was evoked there, too, was the music or the music that was played there was blues. It was that same blues sound that we hear and that was evoked in the cotton fields here, which was that memory. Right. It was that. <laughs> Something encoded in our DNA that gave us the healing and that soothing sound that the world has gravitated to through blues music, which has influenced all contemporary sounds. But that's the same sound you're going to find when you go to Africa. You know, when you go to Mali and Burkina Faso and Ghana and Nigeria, that's that sound. Everybody can identify the the group of people whose traditional music has that same resonance and that same tempo and that same beat and that hitting on the one, you know, like James Brown did, who was a Gullah, right? He was a Gullah Geechee man. And again, that connection. So it's through the music and that cotton, though, the, the way it's situated in the... Um, in that whole Niger region is much like the Delta of Mississippi, you know, which became the cotton kingdom here. But that transference of knowledge is just really, really interesting 
to study. And, and I encourage everybody to look more deeply into that and make that connection and go to Africa and see for yourself firsthand. How many of us will get to see yeah. that, Dr. Turnipseed? And I want to ask you, you say you grew up in San Francisco. You hadn't thought about cotton. I grew up in Alabama. We knew slaves, cotton, and Eli Whitney. When I say Eli Whitney, that evokes yes. what from you, Dr. Turnipseed? Uh, <laughs> when I say yes. Eli Whitney. It, it evokes the same thing that's happening today. You know, people stealing our ideas and patenting them and then expect to get rich, you know, and don't expect to pay us. I think it was Dr. John Henry Clark who said that everybody loves our culture and loves everything about us, but don't expect to have to pay for it. You know, and so that, too, was one of those things. It was it was an enslaved African man who showed him, you know, what he was doing, and then he created it on a grander scale and then made it into a, a mechanism that now is why, you know, cotton steel reigns as the number one commodity, the number one agricultural product, really, uh, still in the world. You know, it's not so much present here in the United States as it is over there in uh, Uzbekistan and Pakistan and China and all these different other regions of the world and even in Egypt. And I actually. think that's what most people don't realize when I think Eli Whitney as something that was taught in American schools. Um, how mm -hmm. many inventions, if you just think on the basic common sense realm, if the white folks weren't doing the work, they weren't coming up ways with, to do it easier. The, the enslaved people were coming up with ways to be more efficient, but they weren't even counted as people. So they're not able to go to the patent office and make this their invention and how many inventions we still enjoy today that their descendants have the generational wealth and we're still sitting here saying, hey, what about our 40 acres and a mule? The cotton gin only being one, but again, you know, I don't even know who to blame anymore because bottom line, you know, we need to stop giving up our genius like that and, and you know, don't demand payment. I mean, period. There you go. And so, I want to talk a little bit more about your genius. You have mentioned Gullah Geechee a couple of times, and I know you've done some extensive writing on Gullah Geechee. For someone like me who has heard the term but not familiar, tell me what is Gullah Geechee, where is it, and why are you so interested? Thank you for asking that question. Now, again, you know, it's kind of on the same level as cotton. You know, it's 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 one of those terms. It's like, oh, I ain't no cotton picker. Well, I'm an honorary cotton picker. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Um, Gullah Geechee, same thing. When I went to the Carolinas, Charleston, two years ago. Uh, got a grant from Mississippi Valley State University where I used to work and to do a summer internship or a program where I took an uh, intern with me. And we just went over to study the region. Because, again, you know, I don't even know how I first got why I became curious about the Gullah region, but it was an, it was like a spiritual pull to go and study. Charleston, and um, which is where 50% of African-Americans, you know, getting off those slave ships. And that was one of the first, it was between Virginia and South Carolina. So when you go to Charleston, there is a spirit, there is a real precious energy that you feel, just like you feel in the Mississippi Delta, that is so strong. And, and I have to say that I've never been so creatively inspired as I have been on this journey here in the Mississippi Delta and also when I went to um, Charleston. 
So here's the thing. I drove from here, went there, stopped through Columbia, where there was a cotton museum, which I didn't realize because that's what we're working on developing is a cotton museum. But it sits there untold, and it tells a wonderful story, too, about the history of cotton. And the interesting thing about those Carolinians, they'd be telling the truth about how African people were the ones with the skills how they came over, you know, and had the skills. The moment they got off that boat, they basically divided them up based on their labor, based on their expertise, based on their genius. So they came in and were divided one this this way, if you know about cotton, that way, if you know about indigo, tobacco, rice, sugar. Those were the, the main commodity. Those were the pillars of this nation, how the nation got its wealth, tobacco indigo, rice, sugar, and cotton. And then when cotton came through, it took over everybody else. And so in the Gullah region, it's where, in fact, Michelle Obama, she is from that region. Her grandparents are from that region. So she has that ancestry. So her grandfather lived up in the northern part of um, South Carolina, and the name of the town is escaping me right now. But anyway, everyone knows him and everybody, you know, remembers his legacy there and everything. It was Barack Obama who designated from North Carolina, the, the bottom part of North Carolina, from Jacksonville to Jacksonville, you know, that whole region into Florida. So it was like, that's the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, that whole southern, I mean, eastern along the coastline uh, region, it has been designated as a historic site by Barack Obama. And so I traveled that whole thing, that whole leg of that territory, that heritage trail, if you will, and discovered the most amazing people and history and culture. These are the people who held on to their Africanness. These are the people who decided that uh, they dance by our music. They need us. We don't need them. They need us. So they decided that, okay, if you want to mess with me, I know how to mess all this up by letting the salt water in on the fields and just salting the earth, right? And so you can't grow anything on it, you know, for years and years and years. And that's what they would do in order to <laughs> keep white folks away from it. And white folks really did just decide, okay, y'all go ahead and handle your business. And, you know, but again, them being the greedy type of people that they are, you know, they just wanted the money and, you know, just let them black folks have their way and do what they do. And so they held on to their culture, to, again, their their indigenousness of, of just being African. And so there is connections to the Native Americans that were there, but then also you know, the beautiful thing is that they own that land and they were the ones who negotiated the 40 acres in the mule deal in Savannah, Georgia. So it was a group of preachers and ministers and community leaders who sat with the general and said, look, this is what we want, you know, in exchange for, uh, well, as we go into our freedom, as, as freedom is coming, emancipation and all, this is what we want and this is what we need. Just give us our 40 acres. And then they threw in the mule later. You know, they just wanted land. And so those are the folks who negotiated that deal for the rest of us. And of course, you know, Johnson reneged on promise and then, you know, 
here we are today. I think that's the but, part of the story most people don't realize is that President Johnson was like, okay, not really. It was the negotiation, 40 acres and a mule, and then he like reneged on that. I can yeah. only imagine being one of your students because of your passion is coming through just on the computer. I'm like, want to know more. <laughs> you mentioned it briefly about starting a museum, and I know beyond your studies, beyond your writings, you have established a nonprofit, and you are working towards this museum. Tell me a little bit more about your nonprofit organization. The nonprofit is called Cafre Inc., and I challenge my students every day to tell me what does Kafre, who is Kafre, and and Kafre is the uh, second, the builder of the second pyramid in Giza, right? So his father, uh, Kepra, built the first one. He built the second one, then his son built the third. So the three pillars are the three pyramids in, in Giza or in Egypt. And so what we intend to do is build monuments that last forever, much like the three pyramids in Giza have. And that's where that comes from. And so it's I'm a public historian. Let me just say that. And what a public historian does is build monuments. Okay, and we build historic sites in the community so that people don't necessarily have to go to a classroom for a semester and learn about what happened here, what was significant about this place, this person, this 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 region or this site or whatever. And are there will be a historic marker and that will tell you the story without having to read the whole book which is what we just did in um, Sunflower County, uh, where Fannie Lou Hamer is from. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about her a little bit more later, but she is that woman who stood on the courthouse steps and who also took the beating in order for us to get the rights to live as full American citizens. And that means to be able to vote. So public historians do that kind of thing. We remind folks what happened here, who was here, what did they do, what's significant about it. And so we just unveiled a marker uh, in October on her 103rd birthday, October the 6th, in tribute to her in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So anyway, Cafre is about building monuments and historic sites and institutions um, that will remind you of who we be. Okay, that's that Gullah in there. Now, <laughs> see, I be Gullah now. Um, <laughs> and so the, the big idea and our, our real mandate is to build a statue for Grandmama now, cotton pickers. Right. Maya Angelou was our inaugural honorary chair. Then when she passed away, B.B. King became our uh, honorary chair. And now we have the blues artist um, Bobby Rush. And Maya wrote a beautiful piece, which was basically our marching orders on, you know, what we must do and maintain and in dedication to this to this project. Um, we never really asked her to get in touch with Oprah, or any, who is too from Mississippi. Right, um, right. You know, but people like that are the people that we believe, our nonprofit believes, you know, y'all need to check in. And again, understand the legacy and the path that Grandma and them have made and laid for you to, to reach those heights and give back and insist that everybody else who said same, because there is no banner marker, statue, sign, museum, 
anything that is in tribute to and in honor of my grandmama now, who picked all that damn cotton and who made this economy what it is today. So, um, yeah, we're building a monument. We're going to build a 30-foot high statue that has been designed by the world's greatest monument developer. That would be Ed Dwight. And he has already designed it. Um, so all of this, I mean, we have been working on this now for about 10 years. And um, that's why I, I wanted to get the scholarship behind it so that I know what the hell I'm talking about when I talk. You know, and not just be that sister from the hood and talk the way I talk, you know, normally. Right. Right. <laughs> Bring that scholarship because our ancestors deserve it. They deserve that scholarly exchange, that that depiction of them in that respectful way that gives them the dignity that they deserve. And so... Yeah, I get real passionate about this. I can tell that, and I, I, I want to, I want to, re, re, in the spread respective of the time of this one episode, it seems like we will need to do another episode about this topic. But I'm so curious that when I first asked you how did you become interested in cotton, and you told the story about your dad, is this what is the irony, or how does your family receive that it went from get this out of my hands and cursing you to basically becoming I mean, your life's work? Like, yeah. how does your family receive that's the direction that sent you in? You know, my father uh, passed away about six years ago, but my mom is still here, and she is she's proud of me. She is, and she's just happy that I made sense of it. Right, and, and you know, and. To be able to tell it again in a way that honors them. I think, again, that's our charge. That's our charge. We can't rely on nobody else to tell this story. And that's. And they're not going to tell it. They're not going to tell it. And they're not going to tell it right. They ain't going to tell it right. When you talk about our charge, when you talk about our charge here on the history of being black, we encourage our listeners to be actively engaged in being the change they want to see. We want people to know that they can affect change. We saw it in the 2020 election with people getting galvanized. We see it with someone like you who had a curiosity and actually are changing the actual landscape of the actual earth. What can someone listening to you today do right now to be the change when we're talking about you know, honoring the legacies of our ancestors, telling the story truthfully. What can somebody that's just listening do to support that idea? You know, what the first and the, the real thing there for me as an educator, my whole approach to teaching is know thyself. You need to get ready. I mean, it, to prepare your mind in ways that that won't allow others to just continue to run game on you. I mean, we're beautiful people. And everybody knows it. And we're so giving and so loving and so, oh, yeah, you know, take it. I'll create something else. Yeah, keep going, you know. But at some point, we got to stop that and take care at home and take care of ourselves and love on us a whole lot more. And you can't love yourself if you don't know yourself. And so it's this very cyclical thing, you know, in order to... To know thyself, that enables you to love yourself, but you can't love yourself unless you know yourself. And so and when you do that, that's when you start looking at the fact that I need to spend more time with my people. I need to love them a little better. I need to, yeah, on purpose, marry people that look like me, you know, invest in their projects, you know, help lift up the community. And I think, again, 
when our children see it demonstrated, then that will carry over because you're passing the baton of this is how you do this. But they're not getting the proper instruction. So I don't blame our children, our youth for anything because it's all on us. That's our fault. And we owe them a apology, you know, and, and we should really understand the damage that our generation as parents, I don't care how old you are, if you're a parent or a parenting age, if you're not demonstrating to the youth, you know, uh, positive and, and productive ways of how to love each other and how to, to respect each other and trust each other, then you're doing a disservice to them. And that's why they don't respect you. That's why they don't respect you because you ain't showing them how to do it. So know thyself. And I love that. I love that because it sounds simple, but it's it takes work. Like you said, you have to have an understanding. You have to be honest. And once you do have those honest understandings, you can't help but have a greater appreciation for yourself and, and set that example. Mm-hmm. I, see, I so have just enjoyed this on so many levels. I know you're going to do another episode of the history of being black with us. I look forward to that one as well. But um, I want everyone that's listening to. I'm sure they feel inspired. Just your voice, your your everything about you. I, I'm ready to go be black. <laughs> so I appreciate you joining us. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Make sure you use the hashtag be the change. Hashtag 21 in 21. We're trying to collect 21 things we can do in 2021 to be the change we want to see. So make sure you add your suggestions and show us how you are knowing thyself, loving thyself. We'd love to pass that along to the rest of our listeners and community. So again, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The History of Being Black. And we'll see you next time. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.